Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. Well, Hebrews, as we go through this book, and even as we put these verses in context, is a bit of a mixed bag. On the one hand, we're reminded that God is a very just God, uh, will even judge his own people, as is warned in the historic precedent of Israel in the wilderness. And on the one hand, we hear that God is very gracious and very merciful and also incredibly long-suffering, who watches over us and encourages us to draw near. And so when we read Scripture and, and we hear these things, it may leave us with some questions about who God really is. Uh, we can see where the world may present him as some sort of a mean, judgmental ogre waiting to just slap someone uh, the first chance he gets. Other passages, it seems that God is just super gracious and uh, doesn't really worry about a whole lot of things. And so we wonder, well, then what is Hebrews doing? Because it seems like there's almost this disconnect. And so what is the fundamental standard uh, that the Lord desires for us? If we're called to be a perfect people, uh, how do we know uh, that we are truly going to find our rest in Christ or not? I mean, is this really our fundamental assurance or is there something deeper uh, going on? Uh, that we truly can find rest and also have this sincere call to live for him. And so as we consider this, we'll hear first or consider first why hold our confession. Secondly, why is Christ superior? And third, why do we draw near? And so let's begin with why do we hold our confession? Well, this exhortation that we have here in the opening here is that we hold fast our confession. As we put this in the context, we notice that prior to this, there's a reminder in verse 13 that nothing's hidden from the sight of God. It peers right into our hearts, uh, sees our motivations, and uh, we are those who give an account to him. And so when we hear this exhortation, hold fast your confession, we say, well, what, what are we confessing? How, how is this encouraging? If if Israel, a people who have been redeemed out of Egypt, died in the wilderness, we're on a wilderness sojourn, how do we know that we will also prevail? Is there assurance in this? And so this is where we have to drill down and say, well, what is this confession? What is he exhorting us to do? When we think back to 3 verse 1, we have Jesus Christ, the high priest and apostle, of our confession. So in terms of this, we, we know that this is who Christ is. He is the high priest, the one who has been sent from God to do his mission. Next, we find in 4 verse 14, we have this exhortation here that we hold fast our confession. 10 verse 23, as he goes on, exhorts us once again to hold to our confession as his people. And so what is this holding fast to our confession? This is something that we see throughout this epistle and exhortation from Hebrews. Well, the call is for us to hold fast to Christ. That's the fundamental call. 
And so as we're called to hold fast to Christ, what was the problem with Israel? Why did they fall in the wilderness? Well, remember, they fell because they tested God. They demanded that God would prove who he is. And so the author of Hebrews is assuring us that in Christ Jesus, we have everything that we need. Israel doubted that promise. They didn't think that God would give them everything that they need. And so they wanted God to demand or demanded that God would prove who he was. But then notice then the substance of this confession. That we have Jesus who is the high priest. And again, this is what we've, we've heard. We've heard in 3 verse 1, Jesus the high priest of our confession. We cling to him as our priest. Hebrews 10 verse 23, uh, we have this confession. We draw near to Christ in confidence, implying this high priestly work. And so we say, okay, so we have the high priest of our confession. Who was the high priest? Well, when we think of Aaron, we could see Aaron as the first priest. We can find then that as a priesthood would develop, you would have the high priest who would reside or preside over the other priests in the temple. Now, the problem with this view is that the high priest was one who could become a rather uh, political office. And so your high priest may have the level of integrity to the highest bidder. So the Roman officials may pay off, pay off a high priest to do what Rome wants Rome to do. Uh, the high priest may receive pressures uh, from the government to do certain things and may completely sell out and compromise who he is. And so when, when we hear of Jesus Christ as a high priest, we may say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean Jesus Christ is one who potentially sells himself out as some sort of a political figure? Well, that's not what the author wants us to understand. He's a great high priest, which means that all that have gone before him are inferior to who Christ is. Christ is one who is greater than them all, superior in every aspect. So where we may have high priests in history that may have served faithfully, others who may have compromised, we find that Christ is one who has served to the uttermost, completely, perfectly. And so the author of Hebrews is, is beginning to build on this concept. And when we think about this, this high priest of who Christ is, we're told not only is he great in every way, but he's passed through the heavens. Now, the implication here of passing through is someone traveling. The Apostle Paul may use this language as he travels from place to place, desires to pass through Corinth. And so it's not just you travel through a place kind of like a road trip uh, where you just drive through a bunch of cities and, and, and you just go through them, and, and you mark the places you drove through, and then you get gas at a certain place. The point of this is that there's a, a destination in mind, and that particular destination is a stopping point. But his passing through also communicates a movement. And so this, this, this is a concept that's calling to our attention of Christ, passing through the firmament, if we think about the creation story, passing through the sky, the, the firmament, the covering of this world, passing up through the angelic realm, and passing above the heavens, moving to a place where only God can truly preside. 
And so the, the point of this is that the author of Hebrews is saying that we have a high priest that we confess who truly is out of this world, beyond the heavens, in a, in a place where we move beyond the prototype to the actual goal and destination of where we are called to go. And so this high priest who presides here and, and serves in this capacity is the one who dwells in the glory of heaven itself. And so as Christ is one who does this, it's telling us that it's not that Christ is continually traveling, where, where he has no, no destiny or no ascension or no glorification. He wants us to understand Christ has gone through everything in terms of the firmament, uh, through the angelic realm to a place that's only uh, proper for God to preside in his full glory. And so the author of Hebrews wants us to marvel at what it means that he's a fullness of God, wants us to marvel that he is the one who is the voice and action of God, as we have heard in the introduction of how he is superior to all the angels who have gone before him. And so as Christ is doing this, we know that Christ is the one who resides in the glory of heaven. This is the one we confess. We confess and cling to the true high priest. Now, when we understand the, the substance of this confession, why we would confess, we may say, well, how do we know that Christ is really superior to all the other high priests? Right? We, we're going to ask this question because our thought process is when you go to a high priest or a priest, uh, he's a man, an individual who struggles, an individual where when you confess your sins to this earthly individual, he's going to understand, yeah, I've, I've gone through that too. I've struggled with that as well. These sorts of things have happened. And so as this high priest is present, uh, we can say, well, the high priest of this age would seem to be superior. Why would Christ be so superior to these men? Why wouldn't I want to go back to the more tangible religion uh, with men who would understand me? And so as we understand this, we say, well, why is Christ superior when these men can understand me? Well, the author of Hebrews addresses this. Because we can say what I've just laid out, which is what he's going to in verse 15, countering uh, this claim. But he wants to understand we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because when we hear verse 14, we may say, well, he's in heaven. What does he really know? Well, the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, when Christ took on the flesh as he began in his introduction, and he's basically pulling from the introduction, Christ knows what it is to walk this earth and to experience temptation. And so uh, Christ is one who truly knows what it means to experience this hardship, this struggle in what's going on. Uh, the author himself, when he talks about who Christ is and this language of sympathy, it doesn't mean that Christ is one who fully uh, understands who we are in terms of being in, in the sinful flesh. Because he tells us he's without sin, yet he can relate to us. He understands this reality of what it means to truly be tempted, to truly want to challenge the goodness of God, to test who God is, and to turn from the Lord. That, that temptation, now Christ didn't, he is without sin, praise be to the Lord for that. An example of this, and unfortunately English translations don't 
bring into the English, or the, yeah, the English translations don't bring the Greek into the English well, but is in Hebrews 10 verse 34, the next place this word is used. And the context in Hebrews 10 is where the author of Hebrews speaks of those who are outside of prison, and they sympathize with those who are in prison. Now, it doesn't mean that those who are outside experiencing persecution have ever been in prison. But what they're doing is they're sharing the burdens. They're, they're being commended for this. They're encouraging those who are in prison. They're not turning their backs on them. They're saying, no, I have sympathy to your cause and to your suffering, and I want to encourage you. And so when you take Hebrews 10 verse 34 and you look at what this text is saying, it's not saying that Christ is one who has sinned against uh, God and understands sin in that sense, but Christ really knows what it's like to experience temptation. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, don't minimize the God-man who resides in the glory of heaven. He knows what temptation is like. Now, of course, we can always have the devil's advocates as commentators address this, this claim, and we can have someone who reads this from a more cynical point of view, and look at this and say, yeah, but this, has Christ ever been tempted to steal a phone? Has Christ ever been tempted to hack into a bank? You know, we, we can go to these extremes and say, clearly Christ can't understand what that is because these sorts of sins weren't even an opportunity for him. Now, if somebody brings this objection to you, on the one hand, you may say, wow, that's, that's a good point. He didn't have phones at that time. He didn't have the opportunity to hack into a bank. M maybe, maybe you're right that, that we can't, you know, if this is a particular struggle we may have, uh, this is something maybe I can't confess to my Lord. But you see, the fundamental assumption in this claim when people try and discredit this with particular examples is that there's no real principle to sin. And so when you understand there is a principle to sin, which is what the author of Hebrews is getting at, it doesn't mean Christ has understood every single possible temptation we can face in our culture, in our time, in our history. But what Christ understands is the principle of sin. And so what is that principle of sin? Well, the actual heart of sin that the, the very heart of it is an entitlement, isn't it? It's an entitlement where I can claim what I want at my time and my timing apart from the provision of God. So I can pursue other gods that seem more fitting to me. I can pursue whatever means that seem more fitting to me. If I have a particular desire, I can pursue those desires that seem fitting to me. You see, that's the principle of sin. It's the human taking the place of God, determining for self what is right, what is wrong, what is deserving in the very moment. And we say, well, then when did Christ really experience this? The problem, again, is a problem with us. We minimize the significance of what Christ endured. When Satan finds Christ in the wilderness... And Christ has been without food for 40 days, reliving the history of Israel. What's Christ, what, what does Satan say? Come on, man. Take those stones. Turn them into bread. What is the Son of God? Isn't this your right? You, you have a right to eat 
This is who you are. You're the ruler of heaven and earth. Show it. Come on, eat some food. You don't need to suffer this way. So now you can begin to understand. Christ understood hunger. He understands the temptation. Whoa, I am the ruler of heaven and earth. I am the God-man. I am entitled to eat. But what does Christ do? Man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, Christ understands the goodness of his Father is still good, even though Christ himself is in the midst of this temptation. Satan goes on. You know, you're one who is going to go to the cross. This is how redemption is being established. This is what your Father has set out for you. The cross, death, hell. You know what? Why don't we just make this easy? You bow down to me right now. There is no cross. There is no hell. There is no suffering. You will be able to be who you are. Just profess that I'm better than your father. I'm not the one sending you to hell. I'm not the one sending you to the cross. That's what he's doing. So you can see the force of this temptation. Again, Christ can think, I am the Lord who rules over all. I don't need to face this. But Christ is one who again turns away. Satan holds out for Christ the opportunity to truly show his glory by jumping off the temple and seeing if his father really loves him by the, you know, the angels rescuing him and seeing if the promises are true. But Christ himself sees the fallacy of this sin. So when we're tempted to say Christ doesn't understand the principle of sin, we're misunderstanding what Christ has endured in our place. Christ understands the principle of sin, the allure of seeking immediate comfort that is easy rather than doing what is right. Christ goes and he does what is right, seeking to honor his God, his Father, the one who has sent him. So now when we think about Christ being the God-man, honoring the Father, reminding us that as we experience these various temptations, may have some different nuances, but in principle, it's the same thing. We're trying to claim for ourselves what is convenient in this very age. And so the author of Hebrews is saying Christ is superior to the high priests of this world because they were with sin. Christ is one without sin. Christ is the one who has overcome and so we draw near, seeing his superiority. Now, the author of Hebrews is addressing the next objection we can raise. Well, if Christ is a God-man who resides in heaven, why would I want to draw near to my Lord? And as I draw near to my Lord, why, why would I have this inclination? Well, as we join together to face the Lord and, and, and to see who he is, again, we can look at verse 13, we can go into a tailspin. And yet we can hear verse 16 and say, well, how is this something where, where we can draw near to our God? So your inclination is to say, I'm too unholy, I'm too wicked, much like Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips, woe is me, get away from me, Lord. But that's not what verse 16 invites us to do. He calls us, exhorts us, gently admonishes us, to draw near. And to draw near how? In the confidence of boldness. This, this confidence is, is drawing near in the absolute certainty. 
It's, it's walking into the very glory of heaven because of what Christ has done. I mean, the, the concept of this is mind-blowing. It's understanding as we have, as he goes on and uses this in Hebrews 10, verse 19, uh, we have confidence to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And as we enter into this most holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence because his work is so sure. So the very place where the earthly high priest could enter once a year and wasn't even worthy to enter into the place where Christ resides, we draw near in confidence because of Christ. Um, we have in Hebrews 10 verse 35, once again, uh, calling this verse to our attention, an exhortation, don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away who you are. And so as we draw near to Christ, we understand he is a priest who can sympathize with us. We don't hide anything from us. We can come to his presence. We can pray Psalm 139, search my heart, O Lord. You know, search me out, convict me. In other words, we want to come to our priest and have our priest truly sanctify us as his redeemed. In our temptation, then, when we think about who we are as humans, we can be overconfident and say, wow, I don't really need to worry about conforming to my Lord because I'm just redeemed in Christ, so what's the big deal? Well, this is a call for us to really want our God to sanctify us, to be conformed to Him, to desire His wisdom and His ways. The other side is we may have a weak conscience and say, well, I better get all my ducks in a row before I draw near to God. We're sort of like the Jacobs. Get the family arranged. Uh, make it so that they can experience a particular uh, war with Esau and experience death, and then I can flee. And so therefore, you know, this is, this is how it, you know, it, it's going to be safe for Jacob and for the ones that he really loves. And so in terms of, of this fleeing, in terms of this saying, well, I can't draw near to God, the author of Hebrews is saying, no, we draw near to God in the midst of it all, knowing that he is our redeemer and he is our king. And so if we're tempted to be like a Jacob and say, oh, I want to flee and I want to do this, we draw near to our God. If we say, I don't need to worry about it, we draw near to God and we want our Lord to convict us of our sins. So as we hear this, we we know that we draw near to him, but we draw near to him not merely to his throne, but notice how this is qualified, to his throne of grace. So when you think of the, the throne where Christ is seated, he's introduced this concept in 1 verse 8, citing Psalm 110 that we'll go through this evening. But as he cites this psalm, it's about the glorification and power of the Messiah, the messianic king. And so when you hear that concept of the throne, you don't want to draw near. But now he adds something to this. He's saying, yes, he is a ruling king, but he's also a high priest. So we have this concept of Melchizedek that's being drawn out and starting to be prosecuted at this point and, and, and laid out for us. So we draw near to his throne of grace in his power. And as we draw near to his throne of grace, what do we receive? Well, notice what he tells us. We would expect to receive judgment and condemnation. If we just look at verse 13 and rip that out of the context. But what do we find? Mercy and grace 
to help us in our time of need. What did Israel fail to do in the wilderness? They didn't come before the Lord and say, we're struggling. They didn't come before the Lord and say, I know your promise, but I'm not seeing your promise. Convict me of this, O Lord. In other words, they're, they're confessing their doubt. They're confessing their, their lack of confidence. They're, they're confessing that they're not really living in light of this identity. And as they make this confession, or as they should have made this confession, here's a promise. You receive grace in this time of need. But they didn't do that. So the author of Hebrews is saying, don't think of yourselves in a situation where all these things have been abstracted. All these things um, have been, you know, just hidden from you and taken from you. Like you think Israel had a high priest and a priesthood and sacrifices and, and bloodshed. And I don't have any of that. The author of Hebrews is saying, listen, those are the prototypes. You're coming to the production model. That's where you're sojourning. And it's not that God has forsaken any provision or any way for us, you to receive strength in this wilderness sojourn. He's saying, learn from the pattern of Israel. They doubted who God was. And the Lord cast them off. They didn't come to the Lord begging for mercy. Exodus 32, what does Aaron do? God's dead. Let's make a golden calf, right? We think 1960s were so hip and so wise, you know, popularizing Nietzsche's theology or philosophy. The reality is this was Exodus 32. Um, Aaron, God's dead. Let's make a golden calf. Let's gather together and worship this thing, right? It's not drawing near in this time of need. The priesthood of Israel was not perfect. The call is to hold fast to the confession of what we have in Christ Jesus as we come into his presence as his redeemed. And so when we began with that question of what does the Lord fundamentally teach us in terms of Christ and Israel and as his redeemed called to be his perfect people, do we really rest in our Lord or not? Well, on the one hand, if we just take verse 13 out of its context, we can think that maybe God is pretty cruel and pretty mean and lays out a standard we can never meet. When we put this in the context of the overall passage, we understand that the overall solution is that we are a people who need a priest. And God hasn't left us in a place without a priest. We have a great high priest who has done what? Made us a priestly people. Uh, we are those who are set apart as his priestly people, consecrated unto him. We say, but what about the midst of my struggle? What about the midst of my hardship? What do I do? I call out to my God. I ask him for wisdom. I ask him for grace in a time of need. We say, but I'm not worthy. This is where we say, well, what does the Lord reveal about Christ? He's a high priest who has laid down his life. He is a high priest who has secured us. And so when we draw near to our Lord, we hear this exhortation. Draw near in the confidence of Christ, knowing he is a sovereign redeemer, the ruler over heaven and earth, the one who has overcome. And so as we are those who have overcome in him, we know that ultimately in terms of this age and this life, 
There's nothing we fear because our lives are secured, grounded, and our victory is in Him. Let us then see ourselves as not sojourning to Sinai, but to Zion as His redeemed. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.